0: Turning now to Scripture, Uh, our Scripture reading for today comes out of Ezekiel chapter 14. It's Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, Ezekiel speaking, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I'll make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I'll stretch out my hand against him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. Here ends the reading of the Word of God. We are in the midst of our Sunday morning teaching series where we're studying spiritual transformation. This is a series on how the Christian faith works, on how you grow and develop as a person of faith. And the reason that we're doing this is because there are a lot of good godly believers, people who genuinely love the Lord, who struggle to make the Christian life work. They see themselves doing things over and over and over that they don't like about themselves, things that have a negative impact on them, on on other people, and they don't understand why they do what they do. They don't seem to be able to change. They get discouraged because it just seems so hard. And so they read in Scripture about people who are full of joy, who deal well with hardships, who live generously. Then they look at their own lives, don't see those same kind of things, and they see the opposite. And I'll speak personally just for a moment. There are lots of times when I feel like this. (laughs) In fact, since we've started this series, I feel like I keep seeing myself getting stuck doing things that I know are hurtful, and wrong, uh, saying things that I know are hurtful, and then I get convicted, and then it's like I have to fight in order to get to the Lord, to connect with Him in any way that's really meaningful. I find there are times actually when I don't want to, when I just feel like quitting, giving up, or when I get so discouraged that I'm tempted at some point to think that God's going to decide that He quits, and He's all done. It's been a very good season for me, It's underlined my need for the gospel. And it's also made me very thankful for all of the years that people have invested in me to teach me how to apply the gospel. Even with all of that, it's still been a hard season, and I think that that can be surprising to many of us. Many of us, me included, have grown up hearing that the Christian life is talked about in very simplistic terms, moralistic terms. Here's what's right— Now that you're a believer, go ahead and do what's right. And when you don't do what's right, that's called sin. And what do you do with sin? You ask God to forgive you, and then what? You do what's right. When you have heard that, when you've breathed, breathed that air in, as thinking that's what the Christian life consists of, it's very easy to pick up the wrong idea about what a spiritual life is about. It's easy to believe that sin is a fairly simplistic category, a category that does not really capture the full range of human experience, or at least not your experience. It's easy to believe that sin is simplistic, and therefore change is what? Change is fairly easy. And when those two beliefs collide with how hard it is actually to live faithfully, you start to think that the gospel isn't really all that helpful for daily life. And so you start to look outside the gospel for something else to help. You still look backwards in time to what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sins, and and you're thankful that he did. You still look forward to the future, that he's making a place for you in heaven, and you're thankful for that too. But then when you look at the present moment, it just doesn't look like he's doing all that much, either in your life or in the lives of the people around you. Now, it's really not true. He's doing a lot all the time, but because many of us don't know what to look for, we don't know what to expect him to do. And so it doesn't look like he's all that active, doesn't look like he's all that involved. And so because you don't see him doing very much, but you do see these things in you that you don't like, you look around for something else to make life work. Something other than relying on the power and the presence of Christ in your life right now. And without trying to, without being intentional, you start to add things in to your faith. Things that promise to give you the power today to live well in the hardships, the difficulties of life. But because those things don't move you toward Christ, they actually take you away from him. And they end up weakening your faith even more. And that's why as a church, we wanted to take several weeks this winter and focus very explicitly on what God has to say about us as human beings, about what takes us away from Him, and about how we move back toward Him, how we grow to be like Him, how we're spiritually transformed, and especially what is He doing in that process. Now, this is the third message in this series. We took off last week for the commissioning. The first two messages were on January 1st and 8th, and the feedback that we've gotten so far is that they were really helpful, that they've been helping people make sense of what you find in Scripture and then also making sense of what you find in life. And so we've talked about how what you treasure controls your heart and that what controls your heart controls what you do. Or as Pastor L showed us on last, uh, two weeks ago on the 8th, that we become what we worship. That our idols, the things that we worship, don't simply end up controlling us, but that when we insist on worshiping something other than God, part of God's judgment on us is to give us what we want so that we then become like the thing that we worship, even though that makes us a little less human, a little less able to think, feel, and act as the image of God that he made us to be. Just uh, uh, as an aside, that message was really convicting for me and really very helpful. And so I, I would urge you, um, if you weren't here, to, uh, didn't get a chance to hear either one of those, get the podcasts while they're still up. Listen to them. You can do them. listen to those while you're driving to work, while you're waiting for the kids somewhere, while you're working out. Uh, make time to listen to those. I think you'll be helped in your own spiritual growth. Let me set the context for today. Ezekiel tells us verse 1 certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. Israel at that time is in exile in Babylon. And so some of her elders, who would be her national leaders, her political influencers, came and sat before Ezekiel, the prophet of God. That's a way of saying they came to inquire of the Lord. They came to hear a word from God's spokesman, probably about their nation, about the current state or the future direction of their nation. They're doing something that many churches in the US would long for, whether the churches are on the right or the left. Longing that our political leaders would voluntarily on their own seek out the Lord's wisdom as they make decisions regarding our nation. You hear that that's what's happening in Ezekiel and you can imagine people from his day saying, "Praise God. <laughs> Finally, our leaders want to hear what God has to say. They'd be thrilled, and they would expect then that God would be equally thrilled, and they would be totally caught off guard when God isn't. He talks to Ezekiel in the next couple of verses, taking Ezekiel into his confidence. It's almost like he's talking to himself, reflecting on what the elders are doing and on how he should respond. Verse 3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? God says there's a problem with what they're doing. There's a reason why this is not going to work, a reason why he can't actually give them his advice. And to understand that, we have to learn three things from God this morning. First, what God knows about idolatry that we don't, second, what he does about idolatry, and then third, why he does that. So three things for this morning, what God knows about idolatry, what he does about it, and why. Let's dive in. First, the most fundamental thing that you learn here about the nature of idolatry is that it's internal. These men have taken their idols into their hearts. Now, when you think about idolatry the picture that comes into your mind is probably external probably physical you might da- bow down to an idol you might perform a certain religious ceremony to placate or serve a deity you might perform this au- external outward action towards some represent representation of a god a statue a figurine but god here says that you only engage in that external ceremony because something has already taken place inside of you. Internally, there's something that you want from that deity or power. You desire something in your heart, something that you believe is necessary to give you a good life, something that will bring you happiness in life. And so you go to the external idol because of the promise that if you bow down to it, if you submit your life to it, if you orient your life around it, if you worship it, then you can have the thing that you're longing for, the thing that you've set your heart on. That's the promise behind idolatry. The inner desire for this thing is where worship starts before you'd ever put your body through some religious ritual. So, for instance, why would you worship a fertility goddess? Because inwardly, you want a child so badly that you don't believe life will be any good if you don't have one. And this goddess promises that you can have what you want. Why would you worship a storm god? Because inwardly you yearn for wealth, for a good harvest that comes from a good planting, a good growing season, and you believe that life will not be any good unless you are super well off. Why would you worship a warrior god? Because inwardly you crave protection from the nations around you or because you want to take what they have. You worship a God of war because you believe life will not be worth living if you don't have guaranteed safety or the ability to conquer in other nations. It starts internally with the longing the desire in your heart before it ever manifests itself externally. And that's why you and I can profitably talk about idolatry even if you haven't bowed down before a statue. Idolatry is a way of talking about what captures you inside, something that all of us can relate to, even if you live in the secular modern West. And when God says that you take idols into your heart, he means that you're not simply saying, gee, it'd really be nice if I had this or that. Idols in your heart means that it's more than nice to have them. It's that you have to have them. This is worship language. It's when you are worshiping something other than the God who made heaven and earth. Worshiping something else in His place. When that happens internally, what you're saying is, this is my God. This is what I desire. There is nothing of higher importance to me than to have this thing that I want. And it's worth so much to me that I'm willing to break the first commandment in order to have this thing. I will put this in front of having God himself. Because if he will not give me this, then he's not worth my worship. Because this is even more important to me than he is. Yeah, he might be nice to have around, but this other thing is vital. This is necessary. Even if it means I don't have him. That's the nature of idolatry. And that's what these, these elders have done. They've taken their idols into their hearts. And so they are coming to God with a divided heart. Outwardly, it looks like what they want is Him. Inwardly, they are looking for far more for something else. And they believe that life is just not going to be worth living unless they have whatever that thing is. They're convinced that it will give them a better life than God alone would. And so they're happy to come and inquire of God, to get His input, to get His advice, But they do so having already decided what it is that they must have out of life, regardless of what he says. And that's what makes idolatry so stubborn, so hard to deal with. It's because it's this thing inside of you, this internal wanting that starts with you dictating the terms of life to God. God, here's what I have to have. And this is what I will then wrap my life around getting. This is what I will keep pursuing throughout my life until I have it, because you're nice. But only when I have it will life then be worthwhile. Once that takes root inside of you, that demand to have certain things in life, how how do you change that? Have you ever tried? Ever tried to change what you most want out of life? Tried to just stop wanting to have a child when you can't imagine being happy without one. Tried to stop wanting to be super well off. Tried to stop wanting to have complete safety from all dangers. To stop envying what somebody else has. To stop wanting either a boyfriend or girlfriend when you think that life isn't worth living otherwise. You ever tried to do that? Ever tried to stop wanting something that you really, really wanted? Something that you know other people have and you can't see any reason why you shouldn't? Go ahead and try. Try to stop wanting a want like that. And you'll realize you can't. Sure, if you're forced to, then yes, it is possible to live without it. But we're not talking about putting up with its absence. We're talking about no longer insisting that you have to have this thing in the first place. Talking about not making it a condition of your happiness. Try changing what you want out of life, what you worship, and what will you discover? You discover that your mind will not cooperate, that it keeps drifting back to this thing, that it dreams about this thing, thinks about this thing, schemes about how to get it, never lets go of it. Why? Because your mind is controlled by your heart, by what your heart wants. That's why people will say sometimes, my heart has a mind of its own. Or as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that what you treasure in life, what you value most highly, that your treasure controls your heart, and your heart controls all the rest of you, including your mind. That's part of the problem that God sees here that the elders have come to him with divided hearts. Hearts that are not committed to him alone, but to these other things that they want, to these idols. That's the first thing he sees. Here's the second, and these two go together. It's that the elders have set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. It's an awkward phrase for us, but there's something even odd in it once you understand it. Stumbling block is exactly what it sounds like it's something down on the ground that trips you up here though this is the weird part it's not on the ground it's in front of their faces and it's something that they are responsible for putting there it's this thing that causes them to trip up in light to life to hurt themselves in their world but it's not on the ground at their feet not something that they accidentally stumble over it's something that they have put in front of their faces which means that it's right in front of their eyes. In other words, it's something that impairs their vision. It keeps them from being able to see correctly as they go through life. And it's something that regardless of where they turn, because it's in front of their face, it's always in the way, always blocking, always distorting the rest of life. I got new glasses a couple weeks ago. And after a few days, I ended up with a smudge on one of the lenses. And it wasn't a smudge on the edge of the field of my vision, but it was right in the center. So that everything I looked at was through this smudge. And everything that I looked at then was blurry. Couldn't see things real clearly. Now, the lenses are different than the ones I had before. I didn't realize that means you can't clean them the same kind of way. And so I'm trying to do what I used to do with my old glasses. The first thing I tried was to use the edge of my... I know you're not supposed to use your shirt. The first thing that I tried was to use the edge of my shirt. I cleaned the glasses, looked okay, they look good, put them on, and the world is still very smudgy. I think, okay, that was just a smudgy part of my shirt. Let's try a different part. Try that, and glasses are still smudgy, and everything is still very blurry. So I go to my normal go-to, wash them with soap and water, dry them off. Now I'm really checking them, and they look clean. Put them on, and the smudge is still there. And I still can't see clearly. Everything is very fuzzy. I went through this process several more times. I can't get rid of the smudge. I finally go to Sally. She got new glasses too. And I said, are you having trouble getting these things clean? And she says, yeah, these are more smeary. She tells me what she's been doing, which finally gets rid of the smudge. That's what this stumbling block before their faces is like. It blocks their vision, and they see the world through it. Their perception of the world around them is distorted, and that distortion does not go away. And it can't go away, regardless of what they do. Why? Because it's attached to the idols that they've taken into their hearts. By taking idols into their hearts, they have simultaneously distorted how they see life, They've distorted what they see in life. And that has the effect then of tripping them up, of stumbling them, of causing them to act and react in ways ultimately that hurt them, that hurt the people around them. And so you remember how we learned a couple weeks ago that our hearts control what we do. Here we're learning that our hearts also control how we experience the world around us, that they control how we perceive what's going on. That the idols that we hold on to internally make us pay attention to some things in life and not to others. They direct our attention in a certain way. They impact, then, what we perceive about the world. And so when we focus on some par- getting some part of the created world, when we worship, when we have to have this thing, we become blind to other parts of life. We don't see them. We don't think they're important. And so our idolatrous longings block out some of reality. But even worse, even the things that we do pay attention to, we don't see clearly like they really are. And so we don't see those things like the Lord sees them. He sees them as something that's part of the good world that he made to be enjoyed, but not something that would ever replace him. But when our idols are active in our hearts, we see them distorted, and we think that could replace God. If only I had money, sex, power, respect, reputation, influence, I'd have everything I need. And so we end up then doing whatever we need in order to get those things, even if that trips us up in life and hurts the people around us. Our idols cause those things to be inflated and they distort what we see. These internalized idols alter our perception of the world around us and the problem for us main problem is that we don't realize that the elders don't know this about themselves they think they see life correctly they think they see the life of their nation they think they see the present plight of their political situation the potential future they, they think they see all of that correctly And so they expect that once they get a little bit of divine advice that they will now have what they need to live well. They'll be able to make good decisions for themselves, good decisions for the nation, and they'll be able to lead the people of Israel in a good direction. They believe that they can hear God accurately and apply what he says to the situation in front of them correctly. And they have no idea that the idols, their desires, will twist and distort whatever God says, so that it fits into their own system. They don't realize they'll take the words of God and use them to try to get what they want out of life. And so God asks, should I let myself be consulted by them? It's not because he's being mean, standoffish. (laughs) It's because he knows that everything he says is just going to get co-opted by what they want. You have a great illustration of this in the book of John, chapter 6. It's a pretty long chapter that revolves almost entirely around the issue of food. One day earlier, Jesus had, led, uh, had fed a large crowd after teaching them. He then dismissed them, and he went across the sea. Next day, the crowd comes back out to see him, figures out he's not there, figures out where he went, and they journey around to him. We're talking thousands of people here. And when they find him, they say, hey, when, when did you get here? And Jesus responds by saying that you're not looking for me because you've understood who I am, but because you're looking for a free lunch. You ate the food yesterday, you came back for more today. That's their chief desire. That's the most ultimate thing that they want. And it has been driving them in their pursuit of Christ. And as it drives them, it stumbles them, it trips them up. It gets in the way of what they really need from Jesus. And so Jesus confronts it. He tells them they're not there for him for a relationship with the giver of life, but they're there for what they can get out of him. They get offended, stumbled. And this then starts this back and forth dialogue between them. Each time in that dialogue, Jesus tries to point them to himself, and each time they warp what he says back around to food in some way or other. And so Jesus refers to himself as real food, food from heaven, food that they have to have in order to have real life. And not one time do they actually hear what he's saying. It all gets distorted because of their idol. And instead they end up leaving. Why? Because they don't believe, as Deuteronomy says, that human beings do not live by bread alone, but that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They do not believe that God's Word is even more important than physical nourishment. Think about it. If you, only li- if you live only to have physical food, if you worship food, at some point, this is going to sound harsh, at some point, you're going to die anyway. But not just physically. You'll also die spiritually. But if you have God's word, if you treasure and value the word of God in your heart because you treasure and value nothing other than him alone, then even if you starve to death here, you're going to live with him forever. We have to live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, not by bread alone. Because that's where our real need is. But the crowd doesn't believe that. They believe instead that in order to have a good life, that they have to have food even more than they have to have an active relationship with the God who is standing right in front of them. That's the idol they've taken into their heart, the one that pushes God out even while it looks like they're seeking him. And because they've idolized food in this life, they distort everything that God himself says to them, so much so that Jesus, the wonderful counselor, cannot break through to them. This is why in counseling, if someone says, my spouse and I are having trouble connecting, do you think you could help us with our communication? This is why you first have to understand what it is that they want to communicate. You first have to understand what they've taken into their heart. Do they want to communicate to each other better something like, I am here in your life to love the Lord my God with all my heart and to love you as myself. And I'm so sorry that I've not communicated that very well to you. I want to work on that. Or do they want to communicate something better like, here's what I'm looking for from you. Here's what my heart is yearning to get out of you. The attention, the respect, a feeling of security, a sense of being wanted that I think I should have based on what I've done for you if they smuggled those idols into their relationship, teaching them to communicate better will only make the relationship worse because they'll just get better at getting each other to serve their idols. They will process communication skills through the distortion of their idolatry. That's why God won't let the elders consult him because point one of what he understands about idolatry and how it works. Points two and three are much quicker tonight, today. It will not be tonight. <laughs> point two, what does God do about idolatry? You would think that he'd just walk away, right? Right? I mean, they're the ones who have wandered from him. They're the ones who are responsible for destroying everything about the world he's made. They're the ones who have put themselves into danger by their distortions. If he just walks away, he'd only be giving them what they deserve. (laughs) They haven't listened to him before, so now they should not get to hear anything else from him, right? We would call that justice, given what they've done. God doesn't do that. He decides to speak into their lives. He tells Ezekiel, verse 4, "...speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols." Or as other translations put it, I, the Lord, will answer him according to his many idols. Or I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. God says he will respond to them. That's incredible grace. But he won't give them the advice they're looking for. They'll just distort it. Instead, he'll talk to them about their idolatry. He'll call out the thing that they're idolizing the thing that is at the heart of all of their other problems, their problems with him and their problems with living in his world. That's God's approach to you when your spiritual life is hung up. He will put his finger on the thing that is at the heart of all of the other distortions. So if you need people to respect you at all costs, it's destroying your relationships when they don't, expect God to point it out. If you're consumed with greed with envying what everyone else has, with struggling to give generously to others, expect God to point it out. If you have to prove yourself to yourself, running yourself into the ground at school or at work or running over people who get in your way, expect God to point it out. If you've taken idols into your heart, expect God to speak to you about them. That's what he promises to do for his people. And this is one of those places where you can see what it is that you really rely on to make your faith work every worldview every philosophy has some idea of what the ideal person is like and therefore every worldview has some idea of what a broken person is like someone who is not ideal and every worldview argues that broken people Don't really get the world the way it is. They see in distorted ways, and then worldviews offer solutions to those distortions so that a person's way of living can be corrected so that they're closer to the ideal. That means if your worldview, what you rely on to live, what you rely on to understand how to live in this world, if your worldview does not tie that distortion to some form of idolatry, to some form of worshiping something other than God, to elevating that thing above God himself, then it will tie it to something else. It has to. And so you can ask yourself, does my worldview, my way of handling what's wrong with me and the people around you, does it talk about something other than idolatry as the fundamental root cause of my distortions? Because if it does, then what you rely on to live life when things are broken is focused on something other than what God wants to talk about. That means that you have a different definition of the problem than God does. That different definition requires a different solution than what God provides in the gospel. And if that's the case, the gospel will not have very much to say to you on a day-to-day basis. Sure, you're going to think that still it's great to be able to get into heaven. But that's not going to be worth very much tomorrow morning. Or even later this afternoon. And if that's the case, it's not going to look like God's very active in your life. That's point two, what God does about idolatry. He confronts it directly. Why does he do that? Point three. Because he wants you back. The end of verse four again, "I, the Lord, will answer him as He comes with the multitude of His idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Here's why God calls you out for having a divided heart. It's so that He may lay hold of your heart, or, as the NIV puts it, so that He may recapture your heart. It's for the sake of relationship. Your idols do what? They estrange you from him. There's distance between you and him. There's separation. He knows that even if you don't. But he's not okay to let that distance go unchallenged. He cares too much about you. Wants you too badly to just leave you to your idols. Leave you to worshiping what's only going to hurt you more. And so he takes the initiative in your relationship. Doesn't take the easy route of just letting you go off and do whatever you want. Instead, he chooses to confront you about your divided heart, not to shame you, not to embarrass you, to recapture you, because he loves you. To recapture you so that you can have an undivided heart, so that you're no longer estranged from him, no longer seeing the world through some distorted lens, so that you can now relate well to him and relate well to everything else in his world. That's why verse 6, he gives you an invitation says repent turn away from your idols turn away from your faces from all your abominations it's God's way of saying there's a way back why because I want you back turn back to me implicit promise I'll embrace you when you see how good God is why he's doing what he's doing it should move you to want more of him it should move you to pray to say to him something like, Lord, please speak to me about my heart. I know you only have good intentions for me and that what you say will ultimately be for my good. Please point out what I'm worshiping. I know I don't know my own heart, but you do. Please show me as I read scripture what has captured me. Or, God, send your servants to me today like Ezekiel and open my ears to hear what you're trying to say to me through them. Because, God, I know that if you don't, I will distort everything I come in contact with. And, Lord, I'm not afraid to ask this because your intention is not to hurt me. It's not not to take away the things that I want. Your intention is to give me so much more than I ever thought possible so that my heart will be fully satisfied because now I'll have you. That's what you should pray. But how do you know if that's what you really want? If you do pray that. The elders didn't know what was going on inside of them. They're just going through the right religious motions. How would you know then if you're sincere or if you're also just going through the motions? Here's here's a litmus test. Watch what happens when God does confront you, either in his word or through his people. Because when he does, you have basically three options. You can be defensive, you can be demoralized, or you can take him up on his offer. You can repent and believe. If you're defensive when you're confronted, if you won't hear, or if you argue, there's nothing wrong with what you wanted. If you have to explain how it really was okay, what are you doing? You're rejecting his voice again, which means what? You're clinging to your idol because you believe that this will give you a better life. Defensiveness shows you're still holding on to your idol. Or if you're demoralized, if when you see what you're being confronted with and you think, this this is awful, I I, I can't believe I'm really like this, I I had no idea. I thought I was better than this. I should be better than this, I'll do better. If you're demoralized, despairing over what you see, you still don't believe that God wants you. Instead, you're simply trading one idol for another. You're now looking to the religious idol, the one that says, I'm not so bad because I can fix this. Neither defensiveness nor being demoralized is actually going to get you to God. You can only get to him by repenting and believing him. Now, what does that look like? You look at those strange verses, 7 through 10. They describe someone who walks away from God, someone who tries to have both idols and God. God says he will judge that person. He will cut them off from the rest of his people. And he says if that person goes to a prophet, someone who says they proclaim the word of the Lord, but someone who's actually deceived, prophet who doesn't confront people, just tells them what they want to hear, then God says that prophet will have the same punishment they'll also be cut off from his people. Those are horrible words of judgment. But for you and me, they can be words of liberation. Because many centuries after Ezekiel's day, there was a prophet who came to earth, who had an undivided heart, a prophet who never took an idol into his own heart, but loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who only spoke to others what he heard from God. Jesus was never deceived into going along with what people wanted to hear, but he confronted them like he did in John chapter 6, and he said what they needed to hear in order to free them from their idolatry and reconnect them with God, and yet that prophet was cut off from God's people taken outside of Jerusalem and killed, cut off and separated from the people, cut off and separated from God, abandoned by God on the cross, cut off so that you and I would not be. He received for us what we should have received from Him. He took on Himself the penalty of our divided hearts in order to give us what He already had, to give us an undivided one. That's what lets you repent now when God confronts you. It's the reality of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection in the past, breaking into the present and allowing you to respond to God right now. And so you don't need to be defensive. The cross says that what you and I have done is so bad that it brought about the death of Christ. We are responsible for the death of the only Son of God, the only one who loved the Lord with all his heart. What's that mean? <laughs> I don't have a reputation as a good person. My reputation's not worth defending. I don't have a good reputation, far worse than anyone knows. So when you or God calls me out, you're seeing just a little tiny bit of the real ugliness that's in me. Defending myself is foolish. The cross won't let me. But I also don't need to be demoralized because God loves me. He went to the cross for me. I'm worse than I will ever know. I'm far more loved than I've yet begun to believe. I deserve to be cut off from God forever. And Jesus didn't want that for me so badly that he stepped in and took my place, brought down on his own head his own wrath that his own justice demanded so that I could be his own. If you're still struggling this morning with wanting the idols that you've taken into your heart, something that I struggle with as well, then compare them to Jesus and ask yourself, Which one loves me more? The idol that causes me to be tripped up in this life that works to separate me from the God who loves me or the God who willingly pays for me rejecting him and then invites me to come close to him? Compare those, and it's no contest. Why would you want to worship anything else other than this God? Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Call us out because you only have good purposes in doing so. Let us see more clearly what takes us away from you. And then, Lord, let us see more clearly you who come pursuing us. Lord, allow that to change our hearts, to long for you, to move closer to you, to want more of you. Lord, do that for the sake of your glory. Lord, do that for the good of your people. In Jesus' name.